We are recording, Dustin. Let's talk about how we think things are going. Well, that's kind of funny because things have been going... Uh, here, let's restart that. I don't know how... Okay, I got to... I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta be more in natural conversation mode. Okay. Right. You know. That's okay. Natural conversation mode. Dustin, stare at me. Okay. Cool. Okay. Are you staring at me? I'm staring at you, man. Right at me. Okay. How do <laughs> yeah. you think things are going with the new crude Patreon, the subscription service, and all these podcasts and the short documentaries that we've been dropping into? Yeah, I'm feeling like I'm on fire right now, but. As you know, uh, that wasn't the way I felt a few days ago, and I actually had a couple days' worth of panic attacks. Yeah, I told you to take baths and listen to piano music and light candles. <laughs> yeah. I, would, I, I texted you or something and was like, dude, something's wrong with me, man. My heart rate is up way too high. I don't know why. And you're like, oh, no, it's cool, man. Th these are just panic attacks. I used to get them all the time. Uh, I, just I still get them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, just just go take yourself a bath, um, put on some classical mellow music. And I, it was like, I didn't actually get to take the bath because I was just, yeah, my heart was going too much. But, you know, l looking back on it, I, th I think it's just the fact that this, you know, basically shit just got real. And I think it was just going through that process because now a week into it, I just feel really good about everything. Well, I think the the crude patrons that we have going for us right now, that, that, that have gone in and that are supporting us at different levels, whether it's the roughneck level or whether it's the company man level. I think that that is definite motivation to keep these things going. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, we're at this point now where there's like, there's, there's so many little tasks to always be doing and, and you just, it's really easy to kind of like accomplish something. And we're, we're less in this like theoretical planning mode. And now we're in the like, okay, we're doing it. It's happening. It, it's it's happening, and we're in it, and we're able to like look at our progress every single day in these different steps, and that's that's exciting, and it's exciting to get feedback from people, what they're thinking of the new podcast, um, you know, where we can improve, and yeah, you know, I was kind of thinking about like, wow, man, this has been quite the journey to get here. Like, I can think to uh, over a year ago, I remember I'm in my school bus that I'm living in up in Fairbanks, and I'm talking to you on the phone, and this. And, and, and I'm basically, this is probably like an hour long conversation. We're actually coming up with like an advertiser model. Like what would we charge? What's our plan? A strategy to bring in advertisers for crude. And basically what crude would have been primarily like edit online editorial content. I don't know. Do you remember that conversation? I don't remember it exactly, but I remember trying to figure out an advertising model that crude could work off of. I do remember that. And, and then ultimately deciding that that is not the route that we want to take. Yeah, ex exactly. And so that's kind of like, you know, that's what I've been thinking about this week is like how long this process has actually been, how much we've talked about what we want crude to become, putting in the research to figure out how we can best reach those goals. Well, and, and I think that's just been the trajectory of crude in general. You know, when it was started, when we started it, it was a print magazine and my philosophy was that we were going to there's Clyde right there, there just barking. Yep. <laughs> okay, so so that that was that that's been the trajectory of crude this whole time. You know, we started out as a print magazine and the idea was that it was going to be this this time capsule of these different cultures. 
And we were going to, you know, the first one was a product of our environment, which was an introduction to the whole idea, right? It was kind of like this uh, mess of different things that we will get into. It was, uh, you know, there were photo essays, there were, uh, you know, photography, featured photography, there was uh, magazine style articles, it was, it was an and art, you know, it was all over the place. And then the next one was, was a lot more focused, which was Slope Rich, and then that turned into Arrogant Minds. And then we had Legacy, which was a much more comprehensive issue. And so what we, what I think I learned through that whole process is people are hungry for that kind of content, but it needs to be, we need to meet them halfway. Like what is, wh- how do people consume content? How do we consume content? And I think that we consume podcasts and short documentaries more so than maybe we do physical magazines, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, if, if crude was going to become like a sustainable media company, what would it look like? And that's kind of what we decided is like, you know, kind of putting out these new formats, putting out these new formats that, that is more generational, that is more in the now that people can consume faster and, and more easily. They don't have to they don't have to go to the crude website anymore to buy this this magazine. You know, now you can you know, listen to the crude podcast on Spotify. You can listen to it uh, soon on iTunes. You can listen to it on our Patreon. You can listen to it on YouTube. You know, these are these are very easily accessible places that people frequent constantly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, media needs to be on demand for people and it needs to be consumed on their schedule. We're going to stay with the same goals and motivations that Crude has always had, you know, telling the most authentic story about Alaska as possible, uh, creating that time capsule, right? But we're going to use these new formats and it's going to allow us. And then one thing I think we realized was that after studying advertising models, looking at how it works, we weren't going to be able to do that through advertising and, you know, like you said, it's like this belongs into the hands of Alaskans and its supporters to decide the fate of our future. And how do we get it into their hands as easily as possible? Exactly. It's like, okay, if you're going to be paying monthly, a monthly subscription, you know, at whatever at whatever dollar amount you decide, which is what's really cool about Patreon, mm-hmm. you know, how do we make sure that you're getting consistent content that matters? And these were kind of the two forms that we felt we could do this best, at least starting out right now. Exactly. And so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to see it happen. It, you know, it's exciting to be doing it and it's exciting to see some, um, some money start to roll in, you know, and it's like, what are we going to do with that money? You know, I'm sure people are kind of curious, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we, well, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a Tesla. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely the Tesla. So what we are buying is we are buying microphones. We're buying, um, we're buying recording equipment so we can, pack it all in a backpack and meet these, you know, these people that we want to talk to, these interesting people that we want to interview, and we can have all of it right there with us. And so we're, we're on the move. You know, one of, one of the things that I have always wanted Crude to be is flexible. Well, we're, we're able, we're able to, to be flexible to the medium that best suits the people. You're not going to allow Crude to be put in the box. Basically. Right. And it's like, you know, as someone who has now years of experience working in in journalism with different media 
outfits, whether it's like national or local, and someone who's had the experience of kind of seeing what works and what doesn't with crude is like, you want to be flexible. You know, it's like for the people who are going to get behind us and throw money and invest in this project, they should know that we spend a lot of time thinking about what does a successful media company look like. And, and also seeing how other people our age and younger are consuming media, right? They're, they're on YouTube. They're on SoundCloud. They're on iTunes. They're on Spotify. You know, they're not they're not walking down the street and sticking you know seventy five cents into a, a a box to get a newspaper anymore. Nobody's doing that. No, exactly. So we've we've been launched for two weeks, and so we have about two hundred dollars per month right now, which is pretty exciting. Shout out to all of our patrons. We really, really appreciate it. I mean, it is great to see people immediately supporting this. Yeah. I mean, when, when, when my phone dings and it's like, you know, it's just a random name comes up and it's like this person decided to support crude. It is like this like massive amount of wind behind my sails that says, keep going, keep working harder. And it's just yeah, a huge, like motivational, like positive mental attitude thing. I mean, we both have other jobs and that makes it that much easier to just keep working right after we're done working. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's kind of uh, something to understand, too, is right now me and uh, me and Cody both have jobs. You know, we're not doing this full time, but obviously that's where we want to get to. So when we talk about where what, what is this money going to be spent on, you know, obviously it's going to be spent on the equipment that we need to execute this stuff as professionally as possible but then there's there's we're going to inevitably want to grow this company and put all of our efforts into it exactly and so that would mean being able to step away from our other jobs and being able to take crude and produce lots of content bring in new contributors possibly new formats new series i mean yeah the ideas are the easy part right it's yeah. it's it's the money behind the ideas well i think that that for us the ideas are the easy part I think that that for a business person, somebody who excels in business, I think that they would probably argue otherwise. Oh, you think so? Oh, yeah. I bet they would say the business part is the easy part because they understand that, whereas they might not have the ideas. Yeah, that's true. So what's cool is, is we're kind of doing bo- both parts. Yes, and, we are. You know, we, we have a lot of morning meetings, right? And they'll be like half the meeting will be an editorial meeting and the other half will be a business meeting. Yeah. It's like we'll come up with questions, research our next uh, upcoming guests, and then we'll be like, okay, where are we at with our subscribers? You know, how are we going to say thank you? What? Um, and we have, we have two different levels on our Patreon, and we did that for a reason. The first one is Roughneck. And that one, that one makes it so anybody can come in and support us. You know, from from a dollar to forty nine dollars. Yeah, you know, exactly. You can come in, and if if you're able to do one dollar, that's amazing. If you're able to do forty nine, that's also amazing. And then we also have the company man level, and that is fifty dollars and up to to infinity and beyond. And what that means is that those those people and or companies see what we're doing and really appreciate what we're doing for journalism in Alaska. And so the first company man that we have is my aunt Trina Duber. So shout out to Trina. Thank you. You've always been so supportive. Let's talk about Aaron Leggett. Yeah, this is great because Aaron Leggett was actually um, a recommendation from episode, uh, the second episode's guest, David Holthouse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right afterwards, right after our conversation, 
we all kind of hung out and had had some water and more coffee and uh he was like hey i think you guys should hit this dude up and that was our first introduction to him it, it really turned into a, a learning like i, I mean there was a, a certain point where i'm sitting there and i felt like he was like schooling us you know and and we had all these questions about alaska and he was able to answer every single one of them we definitely got into the permanent fund dividend kind of a little bit behind the the history of it and you know like you know basically asking the question do alaskans have a sense of entitlement you know, and, and we, we explored that, and that was a really interesting conversation, I thought. Yeah, I thought it was great. Because, because you know, what's really cool about crude conversations and what, I, what I'm finding is happening is we are exploring the identity of Alaska and Alaskans by talking to them. And we're seeing all these different people who represent, like, different areas and different subcultures discuss the same themes. One thing that I think is really interesting is that the people that we're interviewing are bringing it up all by themselves. We're not we're not asking these leading questions to, to to swirl the conversation back around to the identity of Alaskans. It's they inevitably just bring it up. Yeah. So so Aaron is his heritage is Denina, and he's he's an Alaskan native. Yeah, exactly. And so he studied anthropology at at UAA. And his whole, he's basically the curator of, of Alaskan history at the Anchorage Museum. Aaron is the Alaska history and culture curator at the Anchorage Museum. So that means that it is his job to know about the history of Alaska, which is, which is great because we had a, a lot of Alaskan questions for him. Yeah. And like I said, he was able to answer every single one of them flawlessly. Well, and what was cool is he was able to use history as a way to like provide perspective on where Anchorage, where Alaska is right now. You know, it's like, as we're looking at like, hmm, you know, oil might not always be around. Mm -hmm. You know, what are we going to have to do? Well, we're going to have to make hard choices. And he was at, and he was able to use examples in the past of why we've never had to make those hard choices. Yeah. After re-listening to this conversation, I, I noticed that there's a pretty large portion where I'm, I'm very quiet. And I remember that, you know, I was like transported back to it when I was listening to it. And I was just sitting there just, just, you know, I felt like I was listening to a podcast instead of being a host on a podcast. So I'm sitting there just absorbing all of this information. And I mean, I'm, we'll hear it. It's in, it's in the interview. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, it sounds like we won't be hearing much of you. <laughs> There's a little bit of me. No, you're in there. Well, I think, uh, what do you think about getting into this? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's as good as time now as any. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Thank you for having me. What's something about Alaska a lot of people don't know? What's something about Alaska that a lot of people don't know? Um, I think probably, you know, I guess, well, here's one that comes to mind. I think that, uh, you know, we're not a huge state in, in the sense of population. So I think that, you know, we're always like maybe two degrees separated from people. Uh, you know, it's not, I may not know you, but I'm sure I know somebody that knows you. Uh, and I think, I think what I've seen also in the last maybe even 10 to 12 years is our generation is not looking at Alaska as a place that's, uh, you're trying to escape from, you know, when I went to high school, it was like, if you didn't leave Alaska, somehow you were failing. Um, 
you know, I had teachers that told me I was too smart to go to UAA and, and things like that. But I, I've, you know, I just like, if you look at, um, you know, the pride blowing up, I think the fact that you look at, uh, you know, the clothing lines, uh, music, you know, magazines, I think we're, we're of the generation that we're saying, you know what, maybe we went outside and this place is fucking awesome. So, you know, I think that, that, that would be probably something that would, would come to me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what David Holthouse said in, uh, in that podcast to us was that for the first time, it's actually cool in Alaska. Yeah. You know? And so that's, I think I'm seeing that too. There's a lot of people who are pride. Well, I've always been pretty pride, you know, prideful about being here, but I, I also know there's a lot of people move here and they're pretty stoked on being able to call themselves Alaskans. Right. I, w- I wonder what that is. Do you think it's, it was the, all the reality shows? No, no. I think, I think it's a generational thing. I think the fact that, you know, um, most there's a lot of people of our generation that have actually were born and raised here and consider it home as opposed to somewhere else. I mean, I think that it's just sort of this upswell. I think it's also, you know, it's connected to to getting out into the outdoors and realizing, you know, what we have. And I mean, it's all connected to, you know, it could be snow machining, snowboarding, could be, you know, microbreweries. I mean, I I just feel like there's more going on here. Uh, and I think probably a lot of it is, in, in a sense, is a reaction to when I was a kid. It was like, oh, we can't wait for all this shit to come in from outside. And it's like once it came in, it was okay, but uh, we had it and now we're sort of over it, you know? I mean, I think some of it's connected to, you know, the internet. I mean when I was a kid, like you, you know, this time of year, you couldn't do better than to be like, Oh, you know, I'm going to Seattle to go shopping for my clothes and shit. And so now it's like, well, with a click of a button, you can buy anything from around the world. But I think people are starting to realize as things start to kind of stuff we grew up with disappear, especially, you know, local business and and that kind of thing. People are starting to realize, yeah, okay. Some of that stuff, you you can buy but there's also that personal connection people that actually know you know what they're talking about and obviously i'm sure you know you guys know that with uh, your history with borderline and and all that and sort of watching it kind of rise and then you know kind of crest and then sort of maybe disappear for a few years but then realizing the sort of resurgence when people sometimes once it's gone people kind of you know forget what they they had and then they realize that it's not just uh being able to you know go down to you know I don't know sports authority or something and and buy your clothes and shit I think I think we're also living in a very uh nice time Yeah yeah that there's that's true too I think that you know I mean our our whole generation, you know, is built on the idea of selling us back our childhood. You know, I just got, I went to Target the other day and bought this handheld uh, version of the Oregon Trail. So you can like literally play the Oregon Trail on this little handheld thing and that's all it does. But I actually uh, recently downloaded that app on my phone. Oh, there you and, go. And yeah, uh, yeah I, 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 I always get dysentery. Yeah. What about snake bites? Yeah, you know, or you get <laughs> robbed and or you're... Yeah. But anyways, I mean, I, I think there's there is that that sense of nostalgia. But I also think that, it, you know, as people have went outside, uh, you know, I mean, uh, there's been so many places where I've been like, oh, wow, it's cool. I'm going to go to the check out this mall and I like walk through it and I'm like, wow, it's all the same shit I could buy or buy it on the Internet and not pay a sales tax on. 
Well, you know, relatively speaking, modern Alaskan culture and civilization is pretty new when you think of it as far as like um, developmental phases, as far as like statehood, industry, people arriving, growth. Westernized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, sure. it, you know, obviously in the sense of like Alaskan history, you can provide us with a much broader perspective on that. Yeah, but I, you know, I think what what's interesting about that is also I think what I'm starting to see is people starting to realize, you know, when we talk about things like our economy and stuff, like the idea of how can we change the economic model of instead of just come in do it as fast and quick and cheap as possible, spend as little money as possible, and then get out. And that goes all the way back to the Russians. Uh, you know, what is sustainable here? So, I mean, if you look at, you know, whether you're talking about the Russians and fur, gold, copper, oil, fish, even tourism, I mean, it's so much of it is like we're not in control of our own economic destiny. And what I see is people starting to say, no, you know, forget that. Like, these are our resources Maybe there are some places we think can be developed. Maybe there's some places that should never be developed, or maybe there's things that should be done at a slower pace. Like, how can we do it, you know, that's not based on just massively, you know, uh, changing, you know, the, the landscape? How can you do it sustainably? Like we're getting out of this gold rush mentality finally? Yeah, I, th I would hope so. But, you know, you listen to, you know, some of the political candidates and and- uh, but I think that's why our generation is so important to say, you know what, we want to be here and we actually want to invest in ourselves. I mean, I think that's the, one of the biggest problems that Alaskans face is that we've never paid for ourselves. And In, in, in what way? Uh, how do you mean? As an actual investment in our economy. We don't pay an income tax. We, you know, what we get in services compared to what we actually pay is, is minuscule. I mean, the largest sort of tax that we as Alaskans pay comes, you know, from alcohol and cigarettes. I mean, that's like the only real hardcore tax that we actually have um, that actually would pay for itself. I, I guess, well, marijuana, I would add into that uh, as well. But we don't actually invest in our own state economy. And so I think that mentality of... Um, not viewing this as your home, but just as a place where you happen to be living also reflects itself in how we look at our education system, uh, our schools, our roads, uh, our neighborhoods, you know, all those kinds of things. It's almost as if like anyone who comes here feels entitled to like extract and profit off the things in the ground. Absolutely. Or, or you know, college kids coming up from Colorado to work you know, on the trains or on the cruise ships or, you know, in the restaurants in the summer. I mean, all that money just, you know, flees Alaska. You know, I was listening to a, 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 a debate uh, with the, uh, the the gubernatorial candidates. And one of the things that um, Governor Walker was talking about was the Kensington mine. And he said, so what is, you know, of the, the guys, you have three different schedules. You have, uh, you have guys that work uh, one week on, one week off. Uh, what was it? Uh, yeah, one week on, one week off. And it was like 60% of those are from Alaska, 60 or 70%. And then he asked how many of them are uh, two weeks on, two weeks off. And it was like 40%. And then three weeks on, three weeks off. And then it dropped to like 10% of, of Alaskans. And so 
one of the things he said was, can't we create systems that sort of incentivize us to, you know, employ Alaskans, not make it so easy to um, to profit from it, so to speak. Uh, you know, if you, you take a loan out from uh, the state of Alaska to, to go to school, you can use it in any state. I mean, that that's insane to me. What do you think is the reason that people are staying our generation is is staying here and having like this uh this this lack of want to get out well i think part of it is probably in the sense because we have such a small population that if you work hard you can really create your own destiny in a way that it's much more difficult in a lot of places so i think that's the entrepreneurial sort of spirit in a sense is is much greater here i mean look at i mean look at all the guys that have created these you know uh microbreweries and stuff or or wild scoop ice cream you know uh, the girl started off with a little uh you know push cart she'd come out sell ice cream on the lawn in front of the museum now she's got the shop around the corner from uh fat ptarmigan and there's a line out the door and she's open year round she's creating ice cream i mean i think that you have those opportunities here uh that makes it much more uh, attractive. Uh, I think also, I think a lot of it is centered around the lifestyle of wanting to, to get out and, and, you know, go places, you know, drive, go fishing obviously is a huge one, you know, and then the winter skiing and, and snowboarding and, and just biking, fat tire biking. I mean, God, when I was a kid, the only people you saw riding a bike in the winter were guys that like got a DUI or something like, <laughs> but now, I mean, I'm serious. Yeah. Like nobody rode their bikes in the winter, but now, I mean, it's all over the trail systems and, uh, I mean, and some of it's technology, but, but some of it, I think is just this more, I think as the world becomes more connected, also people are looking for a place that's a little more laid back in a sense. And, and you have the ability to, um, you know, really make your mark in my mind, kind of get off the grid as well. You know, uh, you have, you have places like, uh, New York, LA, Chicago, these, these big cities that at least me as an Alaskan coming from this type of, uh, this type of city is westernized city, like a Western mm -hmm. city of the United States. And you go sure. to say New York and it's like, it's, it's overbearing. Yeah. You know, and you're in the rat race. Right. Yeah, I think that's definitely uh, a part of it. You know, I think also I should mention that um, what I've noticed for my generation, too, is this sort of the cachet of being here, living here, loving it, but also having the ability to get out and go travel somewhere and have experiences. You don't feel so trapped. Yeah. I mean, in a way, yeah, it's that I think. But it's also just the idea of, you know, like I'm going to go, I'm going to go backpack in Europe or, I mean, I know it's a college thing, but, but, you know, I, I'm very fortunate in the job that I do that I do get to travel quite a bit. And so all my friends are like, God, you're so lucky you get to go to all these, you know, countries in, in Northern Europe. And, and I am lucky in a way, but it also exposes me, I think, to, to thinking differently. You know, I think that that also you know, um, is, is a, is a big thing is the ability to, to get on a plane and, and go somewhere. Um, and 
we're fortunate, especially in the summer, to have some really good international flights. Now, it's not as cheap as if you were in New York or, or something like that. And you kind of wonder, like all these people that live in New York, and yet they could hop on a plane and go to, to Amsterdam for 350 bucks round trip or n- never make, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, here we're, you know, it might cost us eight, nine thousand dollars, but you know, you, you're going to go make that experience. I think that's what I've seen a lot of is, is that idea that you can get out and, and see other places and not just sit on the beach. You know, I think that's what I, you know, used to always see was like, oh, I'm going to go to Hawaii and sit on the beach. And, and that for my parents' generation, that's sort of the, the ideal. I mean, nothing to, to my parents' generation was better than like, oh, I'm going to work hard, you know, retire, sell the house and buy a condo in Maui. But, you know, uh, for my generation, <laughs> that just that doesn't sound that appealing at all. What does sound appealing? Um. I think, you know, going to other, for me, in my opinion, going to other, you know, northern places, you know, and seeing how they do things, how they have uh, capitalized on being in a northern place, um, especially Scandinavia, um, just the ideas of like you go, you know, in like in northern Norway, you'll see these restaurants that We'll have outside seating in the wintertime. They'll put up the space heaters. They'll put down some reindeer blankets. But people, they embrace the cold. Iceland, I think, uh, is sort of they're gonna they got to be careful on what where they're going because I think it's becoming uh, a bit of a joke. But um, what do you mean they're becoming a bit of a joke? Oh, it's just so tourism run. Like that's driving one hundred percent of their economy right now. I should say in Reykjavik. Now outside of uh Reykjavik, I'm sure it's completely different. But in the city center itself in Reykjavik, I mean it's like being in Juneau in the summer year round right now. Just mob. Just mob. You sort of when you start seeing like the gray line tour buses going out to the fjords or to the um uh the waterfalls and, and you know the the hot springs and all that. You just sort of realize something is being lost. You go through that airport and it, it's, I mean, it's one of the worst airports that I've been through right now, but they had such a huge, you know, economic crash that that's what they've kind of pinned their, their hopes on. You know, I think, I think something like in 2010, they were getting like 800,000 visitors a year. I think last year they're at like 1.25 million people coming through. And they think by 2020, it'll be 1.8 or 2 million people coming through. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, and a lot of it's driven by Iceland air, the, the airlines, because what you can do is you can go on a trip to Europe and you can stay for up to seven days at no additional cost, which if you've never been there, yeah, that's, that's great. But uh, so a free trip, basically. Yeah, but what they don't tell you is that the airport's an hour outside of the city center, so it's you know fifty bucks to get in there. Um, you know, it, it's unless or you rent a car. They're just, I mean, it, it, I'm sh- it's a beautiful country, but you just you be they're careful exploiting it. Yeah, I think in a way. So that's interesting. You'd say that what I'm gathering is that some <laughs> point there can be too much tourism. Oh, absolutely. And the Alaskan economy, you know, tourism's a big chunk of our GDP. And so are we ever looking at that? Are there things we should consider as Alaskans that are negative implications of tourism? Yeah. I think one of the biggest ones is who controls it? You know, is it the outside cruise ships, essentially? You know, is it the 
Holland America Princess tours, or is it the small mom, ma and pa? I mean, it's it happens today. You know, how many people come to Alaska and how much of them really see Alaska? Because what they'll do is, you know, they'll take the cruise ship, they'll go up the inside passage, they'll put them on their buses in Whittier or in Seward, they'll drive them to Anchorage with the hotels that they've worked out the special rates, they'll load them up there, they'll go to Denali, they'll stay at their hotels. Oh, yeah, it's an entire vertical integration model. Exactly, right. Yeah, so in a way it's good, but it's also, it's exploitative. It sounds like if you control how the tourists get here, maybe that's where the power lies. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that, yeah, it, if we get more people coming as independent travelers, you know, on the airlines, then then that'll be big. And, you know, and there's local, you know, Premier Alaska is, you know, a local grown tourism company. Uh, but, you know, they're they're always, you know, working their angle about how to cut costs and, and you know, what what's who's the new kid on the block or who has the most favorable rate. But at the same time, I mean, I think that there are other opportunities. You know, there's businesses that have boomed in, in Denali, you know, Lynx Creek Pizza or uh, 49 State Brewer. I mean, you know, there are ways to do it. You just have to be careful for, you know, what you wish for, you know. In, in what way? I think, yeah, that you don't sell your soul, you know, that it becomes inauthentic in a way. I think that's where the danger really lies, that as long as you, you know, keep it real, in a sense. Like, we don't want tourists coming here and and their dinner is the Denali Mac at McDonald's, basically, right? Like a commercialized version of Alaska? Uh, Well, no. I mean, you go to McDonald's, uh, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. It's, no, where you go to have the salmon bake and, it, you know, you sit down and there's 300 people there and the crusty sourdough gets up there and talks about, you know, prospecting, you know, here and there. It turns into Oktoberfest. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way of thinking of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that that's a real good way. Yeah, as as it appears in Munich. Yeah, that that would be the way. I think also Anchorage is really missing the boat on winter tourism, uh, whereas Fairbanks has really uh, stepped up quite a bit. That that Alaska or that Anchorage is is kind of missing. I think. But anyways, that's just a few thoughts. <laughs> Let's let's talk about your your job for a little bit. Okay, Alaska history and culture. Mm -hmm. That's that, you're the curator of that. Yeah. What does that entail? What does that entail? Well, um, I I think anything sort of Alaskan related. I'm I'm sort of the 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 go to guy on. So when we do exhibitions on things, I mean my area of expertise obviously is is Alaska Native issues, but the fact that you know, I was born and raised here, uh, and I know a lot of uh, Alaska history uh, and culture uh, certainly helps. Uh, you know, I've, I've studied that for quite a few years. But, you know, it doesn't, it's not just based uh, in the past. You know, it, it could be, again, you know, some of the things that I, you know, I talk about, like, you know, I always joke that I remember Anchorage before we had Walmart or, you know, things like that. Um, what was that like? It was rough. I remember when Kmart opened, they brought Kareem Abdul-Jabbar up uh, for the opening, and you know, you know, did that really happen? It really did happen. Yeah. Um, Holy, yeah. Were you there? I wasn't there. I had buddies that got out of school to go see it. That was in uh, about let's see, probably about September, October of '93. Um, 
you know, the joke was, you know, you would always see the advertisements for, you know, Olive Garden. It's like one day if we ever got an Olive Garden. Well, now we got an Olive Garden. You, you know, I, I grew up here until the third grade and, and I'd always come back from Fairbanks. Um, and kind of what marked the change for me, kind of what you're talking about, like life, life after Walmart is when they cut down all the trees across from Diamond Center. Yeah. Pave that out and put yeah. department stores in. That's yeah. like a that's like the total transition to a new anchorage. Oh yeah, no, that you're abs- that that's it, yeah, that all happened right there in in, in 93, 94. I mean, the other thing just growing up here too. I mean, I think about all the places that I just as a kid sort of assumed were like undevelopable but have now turned into to things, you know, I grew up on the east side and so I remember before the Fred Myers went in there, I remember before Begich was there and it was a, you know, uh trailer park there and uh you know the cross the street where the the new chanch new Dune park was was a big greenhouse where you'd go get your christmas trees with peacocks running around yep and and shit like that you know and some of it was just sort of this building boom that sort of stopped i didn't realize you know that it was a bit of a uh a recession at that point just big open fields with like undeveloped houses and, and stuff but it's all been sort of filled in but, you know, I think a lot of it is also just, you know, following the trends and knowing the history and realizing that we tend to make the same mistakes over and over again. That's just humans, though, isn't it? Yeah, but we're not that old. And you would think that we would learn from those sorts of mistakes. So, you know, we redid our Alaska History Gallery at the uh, Anchorage Museum that I was involved with, and it was about a... Uh, $13 million uh, renovation. And my favorite section in the exhibition is called Boom and Bust. And it goes from like late 70s through the mid 80s, really up till the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And just that sort of glitz meets sort of trash in a way. I mean, you're seeing this sort of nostalgia around it, you know, especially in Spinard. I live in Spinard now and, and sort of seeing that sort of thing, you know, the, the, <laughs> you know, ideas uh, that you'd hear growing up, you know, about like a Spinard divorce or... Uh, no, that's, a, that's a shotgun, right? Yeah, that's where you take the wife out with a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, <laughs> you know... I've heard that. Oh, yeah, you hadn't. Yeah, there were a couple of cases of that. Uh, and, you know, the massage parlors that used to exist, even until pretty recently. Uh, in fact, uh, you guys ever get a chance, uh, the comedian Doug Stanhope, uh, who's performed quite a few times at Chilkoot Charlie's has got a couple uh podcasts on Alaska and he can sort of he regales these stories of like performing at Coots like the late 90s early 2000s when there were still a few of these uh massage parlors a hop skip and a jump from the club itself now uh ironically uh, that's where you can buy baby food but uh <laughs> my how the times have changed my how the times have changed yeah that but gentrification <clears throat> or what yeah probably yeah you know but i it just this i think i think that people are starting to sort of realize that like there is something special here and it is worth documenting and capturing so so anyway so yeah what else do i do uh you know just a lot of you know, public outreach in the, in the city, being involved with a lot of different things. Uh, obviously, culturally, you know, for my people, the Denina of, of this area and, and that sort of thing. But it kind of runs the gamut. I'll be honest. I had not really ever heard of uh, Denina until about, you know, four or five days ago when Cody told me we were going to... Um 
film or uh, record this podcast. Uh-huh. And so I started looking into it and uh, and doing a little bit of research and kind of some of your work. And one thing I've realized is is there actually was an Anchorage before there was an Anchorage. Yep. Um, and that is just really intriguing to me. And so can you walk us through the history of Anchorage starting from when it was just animals and trees to when it is, to what it is now? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I grew up here and, and I had somewhat of a sense, but I realized that there wasn't really any talk or representation of it. And when I, when I was 19, I started working at the Alaska Native Heritage Center and I told other Alaska natives that, you know, I was from here and they said, no, where's your village? I said, no, our village is here. Well, what do you mean? I didn't know any natives lived around here. And I realized, holy shit, we've got a big problem. So I kind of made it my mission to increase that public awareness. But our people are one of 11 um, Athabascan-speaking people here in Alaska. We're the only ones that lived on uh, saltwater. And we've been here for probably uh, at least a 1,000 years. But hunting, fishing, trapping, all the kinds of things that you, you would imagine. I mean, this whole the whole Anchorage Bowl was forested, uh, you know, fish camps along the coast, uh, hunting up in the mountains, um, berry picking, you know, all those sorts of things. And one of the things, although we have this huge sort of metropolis here, there are places where you can go and sort of like just get off the beaten path and, and like get a sense. Like if you go out to Campbell Creek Science Center, for example, where areas that really haven't been developed, you get a sense like, holy shit, Mike, there's a lot of woods and and um, we're still pretty wild here we're still pretty wild or you know when i was a kid i shouldn't say this but we used to go you know back on on the army base there behind our house uh the trails and stuff that i mean there's they cut a little swath out but you know they used to you know they used to go snag fish out of uh upper uh i guess that'd be upper chester creek um i mean it can get pretty wild pretty quick but Anchorage itself is only a little over 100 years old. I mean, by Alaskan standards, I mean, it's pretty young. Even Fairbanks is older than Anchorage. Juneau, uh, Kenai, Hope, uh, hell, even Girdwood's actually older than Anchorage, you know, is a sort of a, a community. Okay, so so what did the Denina community look like here? And and where what, where was it? So um, the, the main village was... Atiklutna, you know, about 25 miles north of here. And then they had fish camps all up and down every one of the creeks, mouth of Chester Creek, Ship Creek, um, Campbell Creek. For example, one of the ones that I like to talk to people about is, you know, a lot of people love to go on the coastal trail and go around Westchester Lagoon. Well, most people don't realize that lagoon was created in the 60s by damming up the creek itself. And uh, so, I mean, the creek ran right through there and the fish camps would have been, you know, along the banks there. You know, um, and so that's how they were feeding themselves was basically just harvesting fish on the various creeks and, and waterways. Yeah, fish, yeah, fish, moose, berries. I mean, all the stuff that we still have just in greatly sort of reduced numbers. Uh, and then, you know, the Denina, you know, are pretty much throughout uh, South Central Alaska. So anywhere today that people are fishing in the past were places that were highly productive areas. How many people? Would you say like approximately belong to the Denina? About 5,000. But that's a huge uh, geographic area going from, you know, up around Talkeetna to as far south as uh, Seldovia, all the Kenai Peninsula across the inlet over in Tionic and and lower um, 
the western part of Cook Inlet around Tuck Sydney Bay, and then over the mountains into Lake Clark uh, on Lake Iliamna and the upper Stony River. And, and so what united all these people? We had a common language uh, and a, a matrilineal clan system. Uh, the way I like to explain Athabascans are you can think of them as, um, when you say Athabascan, sort of a generic term, it's like saying Scandinavian. So you have the Danes, you have the Swedes, you have the Norwegians. They all have their own sort of identity, but they all speak a related language. So Athabascans are like that. And in a lot of ways, um, you know, it's very similar to some of the indigenous people in uh, the Sami or the Laplanders uh, in northern Norway, hunting, fishing, trapping, um, that kind of thing. Also, some uh, sea mammal hunting. The film I did with uh, Alaska Teen Media talked about beluga hunting they used to do. Some seals, not a lot of seals, but some, uh, but a lot of mostly fish, you know, centered around salmon. You know, in that in that documentary, <coughs> the the one about belugas that you just mentioned, uh-huh. um, I think I'm pretty sure it was you who said that all the sewage from Anchorage gets dumped into the Cook Inlet. Yeah, that's correct. Um, Have you ever been on the coastal trail by the... The treatment plant there? I, th- I thought yeah. those were mud flats. Yeah, I've been down there. Yeah, right next yeah, you know to that uh, smell? Uh, Westchester, right? Uh, a little further down, but yeah. Uh, more towards like, no, like Point Warren's off. Um, yeah, you know, uh, kind of between Point Warren's off, Point Campbell, Kincaid Park area there. When you walk by, you'll know you can smell the sewage. I mean, that's all going in there, so. Yeah. I mean, what, what are the, I guess, what are the, the repercussions of that? Like the, the physical repercussions and even like the psychological repercussions? Well, nobody really knows. I mean, well, the idea is that it somehow because of the title changes, like you're flushing the toilet, I guess. But I don't know. I well, mean, where else do we put our sewage? I mean, because. Not whole, too many places. Yeah. We have a special exemption to do that. But, but I mean, in general. There's, you know, well, third world countries do it. But. Yeah. So where, where would say like Seattle, L.A., Portland, you know, these other places? I mean, where does their do they go to treatment centers? Well, they or? yeah, they treat it a lot more. I mean, we what, just dump just we just dump shit and piss right out there. Well, it they the uh, what would you call it? The large items, the uh, larger particulate gets filtered, <laughs> but but it's not treated in the sense it's filtered, if that makes sense. And does that affect, I know that there's less belugas out there sure. than there ever has been. I yeah. mean, does that affect it at all or? Nobody really knows. Okay. Uh, I can't see that it helps. I mean, I think there's also, um, I think there's a lot of factors that that go into that. I think, you know, there, there's concerns about the uh, the drilling, obviously, out in the inlet. I think the biggest one, though, is the the, the lack of, king salmon coming back i mean that probably is going to be the biggest one i mean all you have to do is is look at upper cook inlet you know king salmon fishing is almost non-existent when i was a kid like you'd always hear you know load up the the case of coors and we're going to go on the big sioux and have a day bring back a couple you know 40 50 pound kings that that does not exist anymore nobody's entirely sure some of it is pike predation some of it's probably change in temperature some of it's probably you know, what's happening out in the open ocean. Um, but, but yeah, it's complicated. I guess kind of switching gears, but not really. So, uh, we both read your essay. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my story. Tanina, am I pronouncing that? Tanina, no more. Yeah. 
Can you explain Tanina? What, what is that? So Tanina is the older spelling of Denina. And so it's, it's got kind of a funny history there. So when the Russians came through, we told them, they said, who are your people? And then we said, we're Denina. They wrote it down. They also called us Kanaitsi or uh, something of that derivation. And then it went from Russian to the Germans translated it. And then when it got translated from German to English, the T and the D sound get switched. And apparently it's quite common. So it became Tanina, but it had a sense of sort of like, I don't know how, how to like creating this sort of division in a sense. Like when I went to school and what little I was taught about Alaska native history, when, you know, when they would say, you know, the Tanina Indians that lived around here and I'd say, well, my grandma says we're Tanina. Like what, what's, the, you know, it, it had this sort of destabilizing effect in my mind. Um, like we, we couldn't sort of control our own, the way we wanted to be referred to ourselves. I mean, if you go to Kodiak, they used to always be called Aleuts, but now you'd call them Alutic or, or Sukbiak. I think it's much more, we have a much greater nuanced understanding of Alaska. I mean, of course, you know, the obvious one is that all Alaska natives were Eskimos was, you know, also very common. You know, um, in that essay, you talk about your identity as an Alaska native. How has understanding your identity as an Alaska native shaped you? I think the biggest thing is, and it, you know, it kind of comes back to what I was talking about earlier is this sense that, um, the more I understand about like my sense of place of, of being from this place, the more pride I have in it. And, and like when I look out at those mountains and I realize those are the same mountains that were there a thousand years ago, uh, gives me a sense, you know, of, of connecting to a place like that. The history is much deeper, even if we have hotels or shopping malls or, or office buildings. Uh, but I also think for, you know, just Anchorage people or Alaskans in general, I think it also, the more we understand that, you know, and embrace that, the more I think we, we can come to celebrating what makes this place great, you know, that it doesn't have to be this division, so to speak, that it, that we can, you know, we can be all proud of this place and that, um, it can shape our identity and that it, it's, on the one hand, it, it's complex, but also that it's um, it's something worth you know celebrating. Yeah. So so you were you were born here, and I was born here, and um, Cody was born here, and so we all kind of identify as Alaskan. What separates you having the heritage of people who have been here for so long? than say us. And I do not mean to ask this in a divisive way, but I know that it has been framed that way to a degree. Sure. I think, I think what it does is it, it allows us to, to have a historic, a longer historical perspective on how we can make a better future. I guess that would be my, you know, that, that if we can learn from some things about sustainability, that when, when people came here a hundred years ago and they looked around and they saw the fish camps and things, and they looked at this sort of untouched, what they thought was an untouched landscape, what they weren't seeing was actually something that had been sustainable for over a thousand years. The fact that you have some of the largest runs of, you know, you go to the Russian river and fish that we were able to sustainably harvest those fish for a thousand years to manage our wildlife, 
to use the resources without abusing the resources, I guess would be my way of, of putting that. And so I think when I think about that is it, it, it allows people to understand how we can do things better, you know, um, to create a place that we, we want to become fully invested into because we're here and we're invested in it. I mean, I'm, you know, my village corporation is the largest private landholder in the municipality of Anchorage. So we're going to be involved in development one way or the other in perpetuity. We can either work together or we can work divisively. So are you going to bring some of your historic traditions, values, and norms into the developmental process? Or do you think because you're such a part of the current system that maybe you will lose those? No, I think we bring the values. I think we identify where... Where are places that we deem worth developing? Where are where there are places that we deem uh, not worth developing in a way? Because we have to live with the consequences. If you're, I mean, if you're the pebble mine, what is your consequence if you, you know, fuck it up? If you're Exxon and you spill 11 million gallons into Bly Reef, what's your impact outside of monetary? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it is that you just bring a different perspective than say Exxon or the or the corporations behind Pebble Mine. Right. And so I think that what it what it allows is us to have these discussions because I don't I do think that we have to you know, use the resources that we have here, but how can we do it in a way that is sustainable that it's not based on one or two generations. I mean, all the fights we're having right now about, you know, the permanent fund and, you know, should it be enshrined in the constitution or what are we going to use it for? And it, it, it's this idea of like, instead of looking at just, you know, how long am I going to be here? It's like thinking about like, what are my great grandkids going to have to look at and, and have opportunities to do and, and to be invested in this place because it's a magic place. And, you know, I think that that is something that we can all come together around and realize that, you know, there are some things that we could be doing more to develop and there's some things that shouldn't be. It, it does seem to me that there's like this mentality of what can Alaska do for me and not what can I do for Alaska. And I think of what, just the PFD as a perfect Absolutely. example of that. Right. You know, I mean, do, do you know when the PFD was created, do you know what like were the... um. Or would like the what was the philosophy behind it? Well, the the philosophy behind it was that we're we're an owner's state, and also the idea was that if you got the money into individual Alaskans' hands, that they would then be able to figure out how they wanted to spend it. What, what's an owner's state? That the resources of Alaska are owned by its citizens. That you you uh, you know that it's not privatized so to speak because there's very little private property if you look at alaska that exists so it sounds to me like that philosophy kind of associates itself with 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 you saying that like the people who are from here are going to know how best to manage it so if we're going to see some good profits out of this extraction of the oil if we put that money into the hands of the citizens it'll get be, be spent in a way that's the best for alaska that it'll drive the economy. Yeah, that it's not the government 
saying these are the things that that need you know because before it was in place i mean it, the the budgets were just unsustainable but also you know it, it i do believe that the idea was that eventually the oil is going to run out or that we are going to have to use that for the betterment of our state you know and this is for me personally one of the things that i get very irritated about is how is it that we're 46th in the country when it comes to education uh, or our university system, and yet we're sitting on $40 billion it, to me is criminal. And the way you build your state is by education. Mm -hmm. it I, is I, I agree completely. And I, that's why I'm just trying to understand this more so I can be better informed because it seems like the PFD is just tied to our identity as Alaskans so much. People get this, so angry when they don't get it. This is something that's given to them. Right. It's free money. You know, I, this is what I, you know, tell people. I said, I never care. I don't care what the amount I get every year because that is the easiest five minutes of your life. There's nothing you can do to make that kind of money in five minutes. Well, I should say legally. <laughs> unless it's, unless you're like Rupert Murdoch or something. Well, no, I know. But for every Alaskan to literally oh, totally, in, yeah. in, yeah, in exactly, January yeah. to go onto your computer and spend five minutes clicking 10 boxes. Mm -hmm. Yet they're so entitled to it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't say there because I'm, I'm an Alaskan, but I just I don't understand it. Well, I think the one of the stupidest things they ever did was that they... You know, they, you know, did away with an income tax. Even if we had had the lowest income tax in the country at like one or 2%, at least we would have some skin in the game for what happens. Because we look at the budgets in Juneau and we say, oh, it's too much or, oh, they're not spending enough. But where does that really affect our pocketbooks? Yeah. And maybe that like, because we don't pay an income tax, does that remove a seat at the table to decide how this money gets spent? You know, yeah, I, mean, I think so. All... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't it? Uh, you know, so then we say, well, we need to raise the oil tax or lower the oil tax. And you're trying to negotiate with like the best lawyers in the world. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, does it even matter? Because I mean, the price of oil is so volatile are we just going to change these taxes based on the price of oil? I mean, yeah, it's... Well, that's what they do, you know? And and so the other one you'll find is that it's like when oil prices are high, they're saying, oh, we, we have to come together because we can't make it or we're going to merge. When the oil prices are low, we can't do anything. Like there's never... When is there ever that magic spot where they're going to invest in our state? And... There is there is an uptick, but it, it's it's minuscule. I mean, we why we don't have a gas pipeline is, is sort of beyond me, and why the state of Alaska didn't just build it or at least become an investor in it. We we're, it's like we're waiting for you know somebody else to to do everything for us. We never want to actually step up to the plate. I mean, it's like it's like the kid that you know freeloads from his parents, like when are you going to actually do it? And then the kid gets pissed off when, you know, dad says, well, I'm tired of giving you, you know, $2,000 a month. Here's a thousand. Well, what fuck, you know, like, what do you mean? So <laughs> here's my problem with that too, is that you see a lot of these people complain about their dividend being cut. Right. And they're like, well, there's, there's a thousand dollars, you know, off my yearly income or whatever. 
But what they don't realize is that that money was able to make up for a budget deficit and fulfill all these programs. They don't realize that they're actually getting the benefit of thousands upon tens of thousands of dollars of spending oh, on absolutely. programs that benefit our society right. as a whole. Well, and, and again, the other part of the reason I believe that we do need to have an income tax is I also realize that for many Alaskans outside of the urban areas, the PFD does represent a larger portion of your overall income. If I'm making $100,000 a year and uh, you want to tax me at uh, 3%, okay, so that's three grand a year, right? But if I'm living in Tuntatuliak and I'm making uh, 20 grand from some commercial fishing, maybe some trapping, and the PFD's two grand and you cut a uh, thousand off of that, what's the, that's over, you know, that's a 10% reduction right there. So I understand, you know, that there are places in Alaska and so nobody wants to talk about that. So that's why I think the way to do it is to implement it across multiple, it can't come from one source. It can't just be completely cut from the PFD. It has to come from somewhere else, you know, that, that we're, you know, in a sense that we all have an, if we all get this check, we should also all be contributing percentage wise to, you know, what the capital that we have, you know, the people that fought the PFD or I mean the income tax, you know, you know who the number one investor was Bob Gillum, the rich second richest Alaskan now, uh, because what would a 2% income tax on him, you know, making 30, 40 million be? And, and for those who don't know who Bob Gillum is, he's uh, the head of um, McKinley Capital. He's an uh, investment banker. Uh, he was quick to figure out uh, that because of Alaska's unique uh, location that you could, um, using the internet and, and high-speed data, that you could get to the market's at an earlier point, uh, or do trading later in the day. And it's done a lot of investments. There's a whole history. I mean, and I'm not begrudging him in any way, shape or form, but I'm just pointing out that he's done quite well for himself. I have a potential hypothetical for you. If you're... Okay. So you mentioned running out of oil earlier. What happens when we run out of oil? What happens when we run out of oil that we can get to, you mean? Mm-hmm. We grow up. We've never had to grow up. You know, we became a state in 1959. Uh, right around the time that the state really had to make some really difficult decisions. Like, I mean, we're, I mean, there's some, some fishing. Again, liquor tax was one of the biggest contributors. Just at the time that we were sort of having to figure out how are we going to pay for ourselves? What is sustainable? 64 earthquake hit put in all this federal dollars uh that kind of helped you know reconstruction rebuilding keeping jobs going kept things churning along just about the time we're gonna have to make those hard decisions again boom 1968 oil's discovered at prudhoe bay state makes in 1968 dollars 900 million dollars in one day so much money that they realized that they had to charter a jet to go to San Francisco, because in these those days, this was all checks having to be deposited. It wasn't you know, bank transfers to get that into the Federal Reserve, because every minute that that money is not sitting in the bank is quite a bit of money that's not being earned on the interest. Yeah. 
Wow, that's a pretty cool story. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> so, you know, I think, yeah, if you were, I mean, yeah, uh, if, so it's probably in today's dollars with inflation, you know, three, I mean, imagine if tomorrow we said three and a half billion dollars, you know, that we have, okay, you know, what are we going to do with that and how do we, and a much smaller population, I might add at that point too. So anyways, um, yeah, you have, uh you know, 68. And then, you know, things are chugging along. The Alaskan Indian Claims Settlement Acts, 1971. Oil, the construction on the pipelines takes us through most of the 70s. Oil's turned on in 77, you know, and there, it goes up, 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 up. And then, of course, the price crashes because, I mean, the amount of banks and lending and, and strip malls and, and a speculator boom that came here is sort of unimaginable. So I believe that in some ways, you know, it'll force us to actually uh, have to grow up. You know, there are countries that don't have, you know, they call it the oil curse. And in some ways we're not completely removed from that. Places like Venezuela, some of the uh, sub-Saharan African countries. So know. right now we're, we're like trust fund kids. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what I'm getting from like Cody's question and what you're saying is that the unfortunate reality is that we're not going to figure it out before it's too late. And we're going to have to have some serious repercussions to make us, to force us to shift into a new, a new way to provide for ourselves. Yeah. And we're I think- We're not going to figure it out before. I, I, I remain hopeful. Uh, but I think that, again, I think we're going to have to figure out- how do we start to utilize some of the other natural resources we have here? You, you know, I'm not hopeful because I'm looking at this current uh, campaign. <laughs> for, I'm looking at the, you know, there's what, the uh, the governor, right? Is, right. We're going to have a new governor. And I just saw this ad and it, I, I think it was from Dunleavy, but I'm not sure. Probably. But it was basically like, you don't have to choose. You can have it all. And that was yeah, the message, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no. I know. Why? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree, you know, and it, it's more of the same. It's like if we can just, if we can shake the shackles from the federal government. I mean, Anwar, you know, look at the big push for that. And do I think that we could drill in there? Yeah, but I think there's certain spots that we shouldn't. But the gas pipeline, we keep hanging our hat on. It, in a way, we just sort of like kick the can down the road. You know, you have all these legislators that have decided to retire. Why? Because it's not any fun anymore when you have to make real hard decisions. Yeah. You know, so, but I think that's why the power of people, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm somewhat hopeful in that look at that Walker got elected that, you know, we didn't go with the current model of, uh, what was, what Don Young called him? Captain Zero, um, Parnell. <laughs> what, what does that mean? That's, I don't know. That's what he called him. He called him Captain Zero. I don't know. It was like he was a nothing uh, when he tried going against uh, Don Young for his seat. But, you know, if this, I, I think that I would hope that people get out and vote and realize that we do have a decision to make here that is do what what kind of future do we want for Alaska? Do we want safety? Do we want roads? Do we want good schools and are we willing to invest in ourselves that's the problem is we refuse to invest in ourselves i don't think that people can even like envision what that 
looks like investing in yourself. They think that investing in myself is getting the PFD, having a good job, and being left the fuck alone. Right. I mean... Do you know what I mean? Like, like you talk about education. They're not educated on, on like, how important all this, this whole system is. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I get Awareness it. is what I'm talking about. Well, no, I know. I mean, and I, I yeah, I, I know. You're right. It is maddening sometimes. But I think that... I, I just think that that's why our generation, if, if what we're talking about here, about being proud of, like, where we're from and what we want to represent we want to represent the best version of that and that is not you know um you know god my shack out in the woods you know that it has no trespassing signs you know and i mean i there there's still room for that in a way but there's also we have to be productive citizens in my opinion and we have to invest in ourselves. Every other fucking state does it. So why can't we? Except Nevada, I guess. So maybe we legalize gambling. That'll be our next savior. <laughs> Metlakitla has a, uh, they has do. a casino, right? They do have a little casino, yeah. There's mm -hmm. a casino in Alaska? There well, is. Where is this? It's uh, on Annette Island off way past, down past uh, Ketchikan. Annette Island's actually the only reservation in Alaska. It goes back to the 1880s. Uh, but Okay, uh, so perfect. I, I kind of want to go and talk more about this casino, but maybe that's for another podcast. Why is there only one reservation on here? And yeah, can you explain that? Sure. Um, so basically in 1867, so 150 years ago, you have the Treaty of Sessions. The U.S. quote unquote purchases Alaska for $7.2 million. Seward's folly. Seward's folly. Two cents an acre. If you look at what the Russians really did and had, they you weren't they weren't buying Alaska and they weren't really interested in buying the whole state, so to speak. The idea was you're buying what Russia's claim to Alaska was, which was mostly along the coast. And in particular, they were interested in the Pribilof Islands where the fur seals were. What most people don't realize is that within two years of the purchase, that seven point two million dollars was made back on those two islands with the furs that came out of there. So it was a pretty good investment. But Really, until the gold rush, people started to kind of inhabit more of the interior and and throughout, you know, the area that it there wasn't this idea of like land ownership and, and land claim. So they kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And then in 1959, when Alaska became a state, uh, the state was allowed to select, I think, 110 million acres of land. And so all of a sudden the state starts selecting all these pieces and places where uh, Alaska Native people had always hunted, fished, and trapped. Were now the state saying, "Well, no, you can't do that because this is now state land." Uh, so they became concerned. There were also these massive federal projects. One called the Rampart Dam. It would have flooded, would have dammed up part of the Yukon River and flooded ten interior villages to create the U.S.'s largest hydroelectric plant. Luckily, that never went through. The, you can imagine what that would have done for salmon runs. China went and did that uh, a few years ago. Uh, they've got the world's largest uh, hydroelectric. Yeah, how did that, it turn out? No, that didn't turn out good. I mean, a lot of people's, there was a huge amount of di displacement. Yeah, you know, millions. 20, 30 million a, people. Yeah. Is that the Three Gorges Dam or yeah. something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. So another project they had was uh, called uh, Project Chariot, where they would have detonated four uh, underwater atomic bombs about 20 miles from uh, the village of Point Hope. The idea was 
that we could have peaceful applications of atomic weapons. And I don't fault them necessarily at the time because they really didn't understand the sort of fallout and radiation. Uh, these were also the years when they used to, you know, set off bombs, you know, 50 miles from Las Vegas and people would get on top of the casinos and watch them go off. And but there's anyways, a, there's a book uh, called Firecracker Boys. Yeah, Firecracker right? Boys. Yeah, it really documents that history. But you can imagine what that would have done. So Alaska Natives became really concerned. Okay, what is our rights to, you know, our land and, and protecting our, our traditional homeland? So you have the formation of the Alaska Federation of Natives on a shoestring budget trying to fight for retaining something because there were no reservations. And by that point in sort of U.S. history, the reservation model was not a good model because there were no casinos. Uh, very few reservations had anything, any economic activity. I mean, it's pretty pitiful. And the federal government and the state government also realized that they didn't want to have to create, you know, a hundred different reservations around the state and the administration. And somewhat like those become almost sovereign nations. Right. right? Sovereign territories. Exactly. So what the compromise was is we're going to do this experiment in social capitalism. So we have the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. So Alaska Natives retained 44 million acres of land, about 10% of the state. And we're given, or for also waiving land rights, just under a billion dollars to be divided among 11 regional corporations and about 200 village corporations. Now, 500 million was to come from the federal government and 500 million or approximately that would have come from the state government. But oh yeah, they had 10 years to give that. And as I was telling you that story about 900 million, you know, going into the bank, they took their sweet time for that 10 years. So it should be pointed out that uh, by the end, you know, uh, $963.5 million is not worth the same in uh, 1981 as it was in 1971. And, and whereas if they would have just paid it right away, the same idea, they could have been building interest and it'd just be worth a lot. Yeah, more. and it was, so it was unclear. But the idea was that Alaska Natives own the land in fee simple title. They can buy and sell those lands and develop them within you know, state and federal laws any way they seem fit. So it's this sort of social capitalism. So it's not a bad idea, uh, but then dealing with the ideas of, of how do you take care of people, because what most people don't realize is the regional corporations have one mandate in their charter, and that's to make profit for their shareholders like any other business. That's the only thing they have to do is make you know money. Anything else? They feel obligated to do, they should do and want to do and believe in doing, they they do, but they don't have to do it. So, you know, and there were a lot of, you know, people that were fighting this to say, you know, what a what a terrible deal it is and what what a giveaway it is. But smart people realized, well, if you get the land into Alaska Native's hands, again, that's your best shot of being able to develop things like, you know, the uh Red Dog Mine uh, is probably the biggest example of, you know, a huge sort of uh, industrial project. But there's, you know, there's many others that exist out there. So can you just real quick explain the Red Dog Mine in context to what we're talking about? Well, it's the world's largest zinc mine up in northwest Alaska. And, you know, I mean, I tell people we need more projects like that. I mean, some and some environmentalists would argue that it, you know, it's the most polluted 
uh, district uh, in the country and, and that. But if I was a, a Nana shareholder and I lived in Buckland or Kiana, and you told me I could go work two weeks on, two weeks off and make seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year and be in my village, like that's the dream, I think. I mean, Jesus, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, you'd be able, you know, as long as you, you know, don't get into trouble, have a clean piss test, but anything you want to do subsistence wise, brand new snow machines, brand new boats. But is, like, is that, is that, you, you know, this is the model you're saying, but is that a model that just, Bene does it benefit the entire state or is it just oh absolutely it does yeah. yeah but they pay yeah they pay huge taxes and I should also mention that one of the things that was set up in uh the land claims was that 70 percent of the subsurface revenues that are generated get distributed among the other 11 regional corporations so every year so Nan only keeps 30 percent of their profit on that Mine. Now they get to deduct for their shareholders. So we'll say it's like 33, 34%. But the other 65, 66%, that gets spread out to all the other regional corporations. And a lot of them, you know, especially for village corporations, you know, a portion of their annual uh, dividends that are paid out come out of that money. Now some reinvest it, some do all sorts of things. So it does have this effect that, um, that definitely spreads the wealth that you're not seeing from an Exxon or a ConocoPhillips. Well, I'll tell you, you know, before, before talking to you tonight, I didn't know really, I didn't know anything about kind of how these were created. What, what were the, uh, what were the reasons? And you kind of made me into a believer as far as like, you know, I grew up living with a lot of Alaska natives uh, in school and stuff. And one thing I noticed is that, you know, they wouldn't travel out of state as much. You know, they felt a real connection to this place. And what I'm what I'm getting at here is that when you put a lot of the control of our development into people who have a strong connection to the place, they might actually be able to take care of it the best. Yeah. Or at least have a they need to have a good say. Yeah. I, I would agree. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. And as well. I mean, that's just not something that I had thought about or considered prior to tonight. You know, so so thanks. No problem. To uh, to close this out here, I I read that you you know the Denina language. Are there any sayings, axioms, or proverbs in Denina that you could tell us? Uh, well, you know, I think I'll leave on one, one of my favorite is it's a place name, uh, and it's called Nunlechkadi. And, uh, what that translates to is rotten land and where that is. Well, that's near earthquake park. So, uh, all those houses that were built <laughs> over there that went down in the 64 earthquake, uh, if they had asked the Denina, they would have told them that that's not a good place to build, but we weren't asked. And so, you know. A lot of mansions went down in the 64 earthquake there, but none less could be rotten land. That's awesome. That is yeah. awesome. That's funny. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Aaron. This yeah, no problem. Yeah, it's been great. Super informative. Yeah, Aaron, yeah. That, that was great, and this was a lot of good, important information that I think uh, Alaskans need to hear. Sure, yeah, and if any time you want me back, I'd be happy to. Dude, that was awesome. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community 
for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by Cody Liska and Dustin H. James for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats.